Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Up next, a desperate woman struggles to survive. She was trying to get to the phone. Hard to say if that was before or after she was shot. Police have a solid suspect, but he's got an airtight alibi. This is not your prototypical killer. We were looking everywhere to try to get to the bottom of this mystery. The killer knows how to destroy evidence and nearly succeeds. I've had a number of cases where individuals have tried to obliterate the microscopic marks produced by the barrel. Luckily for forensic scientists, some of these folks don't know what they're doing. Southern Pennsylvania is dotted with numerous small towns and communities centered around farming and agriculture. York County, Pennsylvania is right along the border with Maryland with a history that goes back prior to the Civil War. It has uh, some involvement in the Battle of Gettysburg. Violent crime is a rarity in the area. So when, on a March afternoon in 2010, A 911 operator got a call with no response on the other end. It was assumed to be an accidental call. York County 911, dispatcher 65. Hello? Hello? 99% of those turn out to be totally nothing, either a kid playing with a phone or, or something along those lines. It's nothing that would raise an alarm. The York County Control hung up the phone and called back and received a busy signal, so that means that the line is still open. The call was from a landline, from the home of a 55-year-old woman named Monica Schmeyer. An officer responded to the house, located in a very remote area. Monica's house is located on the top of a hill. You can only get there through this kind of a winding driveway that gets to the home. Police arrived, announced their presence, but got no response. The reason became clear shortly after they entered the residence. So I was the second one on scene. She was on the floor in the living room, and uh, she was obviously deceased. We suspected a gunshot wound to the head, but we weren't 100% sure exactly what was going on. The victim was identified as Monica Schmeyer. On the floor next to her body was a single 32 caliber shell casing. The brand, Spear, was plainly visible. At first, there was no sign of a struggle in the house. If anything jumped out at the beginning, it was possibly more of a suicidal situation, that it was possibly that she had killed herself. 
That was the initial thought. But a quick survey of the scene put that theory to rest. There was no gun in the house. Monica's face was bloody and bruised, indicating she'd been struck in the head. A blood trail across the floor led to her body. She had blood on the inside of her thighs that were in in a pattern consistent with dripping downward into her inner thighs, as well as blood on the soles of her feet and her socks. So at some point in time, she had gotten up from where she had been sitting and bleeding and moved across the floor towards the phone where she was ultimately killed. In fact, it appeared Monica's last act was to call 911. This provided a vital clue. The 911 call becomes so important because they can pinpoint exactly when the call was made. 2.52. How does that help them? Well, it helps them narrow down the time of death. Police were puzzled. No motive for this murder was immediately apparent. Her purse was found inside the house. There was lots of other personal property. There was cameras and cell phones and TVs and VCRs. Even stranger, there were a lot of white envelopes all over the room, and they were filled with cash. Monica had an interesting way of handling cash and paying her bills. She, she didn't trust banks, so she kept cash in her home whenever she needed it. If the killer left thousands of dollars behind, murder would seem to be the only motive. But who would want Monica Schmeier dead? It didn't take long to find a suspect. Experience shows that, you know, somebody's going to kill you, they usually know you, and it's usually someone very close to you. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Monica Schmeier met her husband, John, at medical school in the late 1970s. When they married, she gave up her medical career to be a stay-at-home mom to the couple's two daughters. John Schmeier built a successful ophthalmology practice. Life, at least for a while, was good. According to Monica, John seemed to develop a wandering eye, and when she found out about it, being a Catholic as she was, she, she didn't want to get a divorce. So she actually stayed with John for a number of years. Monica eventually consented to a divorce, at least on paper. 
In Monica's mind, regardless of what the divorce papers said, they were married and they were until death do they part. When detectives notified John Schmeier of his ex-wife's execution-style murder, his reaction struck them as more than a little unusual. It looked more like an act than a natural reaction. He would cry and then look up and cry and look up, and there were no tears. He would go from crying to talking, back to crying, back to talking, but there was never a tear. Schmeier readily admitted he and Monica had issues. He said he wanted to move on from the marriage, but Monica insisted on being part of his life. He was very frustrated with the divorce, how things were going. Um, it had been drawn out. It had been a couple years since they had split. And Schmeier was known to complain about this. Friends said that what he found particularly galling was not how much he paid in alimony, but how Monica insisted it be paid. She didn't trust banks. So John would pay Monica in cash every month. She would set that money aside, apportioning it for her bills. Then she would go back to John, give him that cash back, and he would write the checks to the utilities or others that she owed money to. Try as he might, Schmeier couldn't free himself from his now ex-wife, but he insisted he had nothing to do with her murder. Police knew practically to the minute when that murder happened, and Schmeier said he had an alibi. He was at a local restaurant with a group of friends who called themselves the Orange Shorts Society. The Orange Shorts Society, which is a group of middle-aged men that get together once a week at, the, at a local restaurant, and they would, you know, talk about politics, money, investments, whatever, but uh, they were all well-to-do men. On the afternoon of Monica's murder, most of the usual group met and they confirmed John Schmeier was there. At first blush, it did seem that he had an alibi, but you could still be a hire for murder type situation. There seemed to be enough bad blood there. It would appear that he could gain substantially from her death. So now investigators turned to what little evidence they had. An autopsy revealed Monica died from a close range gunshot to the head. A 32 caliber bullet consistent with the casing found at the scene, was recovered and forensically examined. The general rifling characteristics list that was populated showed that firearms produced by Colt, Dixon, and Keltec were among the firearms that could have fired this particular specimen. While the bullet was damaged, it had sufficient markings to match it to the murder weapon if only that gun could be found. If you submit a gun or you submit a barrel, then we can go and test fire those and uh, compare them to this particular weapon. There were possible witnesses to the murder. Even though Monica's house was well off the road, a neighbor saw a man walking in the direction of her house shortly before she made the 911 call. About 20 minutes later, the man appeared again, walking away from Monica's house. He sees that same man walking in, in what he described as walking with a purpose, carrying what he believed to be a white envelope in his hand, which then, you know, we immediately say, oh, white envelope, white envelope. We had white envelopes at the scene with cash. The man was described as a white male, approximately five feet nine with a medium build. A second witness said he also saw a man matching that same description 
walking up a hill away from Monica's house, and that he drove away in a silver van. Not a, you know, soccer mom van, not a big box truck, but like a work van, a work-type van parked facing down the hill. So far, these witness descriptions were all detectives had to identify this man. It couldn't be said for certain if he even had anything to do with Monica's murder or if he had any ties to Monica's ex-husband. We'll come up with 15 different ways this thing happened. We got to find the right one and be able to prove that one. That's, that's sort of the name of the game. The prime suspect in the murder of Monica Schmeier was a man seen near her home on the day of the murder. Detectives focused on the vehicle the man was driving, a silver full-sized van. The witness who saw the van didn't get a license plate and didn't know the make of the vehicle. There was no specific markings about it. We found about 50 different silver vans. We had vans, we don't know if we had the van. Businesses in nearby towns were canvassed. Detectives hoped either man or machine had seen the van. Everybody has cameras, everybody's, you know, banks and and stores and ATMs. And I mean, there's cameras everywhere nowadays. So it's a cursory thing for us. We'll, We'll check all the video. A bank in a town about three miles from Monica's house captured video of a full sized silver van heading in the direction of her house about 15 minutes before the murder. You see that same van twice on the video, once prior to the time of death and once after the time of death, corresponding to the direction of travel as far as to and from the house. But the video was blurry, and attempts to enhance it were unsuccessful. There was no way to, to try to get a license plate or anything along those lines because the camera itself is designed and focused on people entering and exiting the bank not in the background. Which put the investigation almost back to square one. Since Monica didn't date, there were no ex or current boyfriends in the picture, and the possibility of this being a random murder was dismissed out of hand. You just didn't find this house on a whim. This was a house that you had to know was there. We knew we had to find a connection to Monica. We just didn't know what that connection was yet. Searching for anything he could have missed, Detective Doug Demingon reviewed his notes and found something interesting from his initial interviews with friends of Monica's ex-husband, the members of the Orange Shorts Society. On the afternoon of the murder, the group was joined by a young woman named Sarah, who was engaged to be married to one of the members. I'm going through my notebook and I'm getting to my interview with Sarah. And I'm looking and I'm flipping and I see the name Tim Jacoby at the top of this piece of paper. Tim Jacoby was the only regular member of the Orange Short Society who wasn't present that day. And I went, oh my gosh. I said, you know, I never really looked into this guy. And I then pull his driver's license photo up and again, oh my gosh. His height fits, his description fits, everything fits. Jacoby was 37 years old, had a good job as an engineer, and didn't appear, at first, 
to be a cold-blooded killer. And then as you dug a little deeper, oddly enough, you found that he had this armed robbery history. I find that he has a prior robbery arrest where he involved a, a takeover of a jewelry store where he ended up dropping the jewelry as he was fleeing. Jacoby pleaded no contest and, with no prior criminal history, escaped jail time. Records showed he owned a 32 caliber Caltech semi-automatic pistol. The bells are going off now because a 32 caliber is what they're looking for. That is the shell casing they found at the scene of the crime. While Jacoby didn't know Monica, detectives say they had never met, he did know of her through John Schmeyer and the Orange Short Society. I take it to all of our investigators and say, here we go, Tim knows John. So now is this a whole conspiracy that John pays Tim to knock off Monica? So now we're back in full throttle and we're moving ahead. After weeks of frustration, detectives finally had a possible suspect in the murder of Monica Schmeyer. Tim Jacoby fit witness descriptions. He knew where Monica lived, and employment records showed he was driving a company van, a full-sized silver van, just like a witness saw on the day of the murder. It's the same make, same model, same year, same color, everything. Circumstantially, when you look at it, it's the same van as the one we saw in the video going towards Monica's house at 2.38 and coming back through at 2.59. A search warrant was executed on Jacoby's home. His live-in fiance, Sarah, didn't take it well. She literally threw up. When I was talking to her, she got so worked up, she was hyperventilating, and she vomited in a garbage can. Detectives didn't find a 32 caliber gun, but they did find a 32 caliber Kel-Tec gun barrel. The rest of the gun was nowhere to be found. But the gun barrel would be consistent with the murder weapon. There was one problem. Someone had scoured the inside of the barrel, an apparent attempt to destroy it as a piece of evidence. These particular marks were probably produced by a uh, hard surface tool that was used to scratch or to actually mark the lands and grooves inside the, the barrel. Test bullets were fired through the damaged barrel, but the scratches apparently worked. They prevented a definitive match from being made to the bullet recovered from Monica's autopsy. The bullets lacked sufficient microscopic marks to render an opinion of an identification. Detectives now learned that Jacoby often used his parents' nearby farm for target practice. Teams of forensic analysts descended on the property. We found the box to the Caltech gun. We found the receipt for the Caltech gun. We found ammunition for the, the Caltech 32. But still no gun. However, in the area where Jacoby did his target practice, investigators found four spent shell casings from a 32 caliber. It was hard to say how long these casings had been there. Once those particular cartridge cases were cleaned up, the examiner was able to see that these were manufactured by Spear. They were 32 auto caliber. Uh, it's the same as the cartridge case that was recovered 
at the scene of the crime. In the same way that bullets are made distinctive by the gun that fires them, shell casings also retain tool marks that are unique to a particular weapon. Microscopic markings on the base of the casings were compared under a microscope to the casing recovered from Monica's living room, and they matched. The opinion that was rendered was that, in fact, all of these cartridge cases were fired from the same firearm. That definitively tied Tim Jacoby, or at least shell casings on his parents' property, to the fatal bullet. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. But one question remained. Why would he kill someone he didn't even know? On face value, Tim would not have had any reason to kill Monica, unless hired by John to do so. Investigators did a deep dive into John Schmeier's financial records, looking for any kind of payment to Jacoby. There was nothing there. We were unable to substantiate any kind of connection between John, Sarah, and Tim. And then it got to the point where, okay, we've now eliminated John. Investigators believe Tim Jacoby targeted Monica not for murder, but robbery. He knew there were thousands of dollars of cash laying around her house. After all, his friend John Schmeier complained about it all the time. I think he listened to the stories. I think he knew about the money. I think he knew about the envelopes. Investigators believe Jacoby drove to the house that day in his silver work van. He parked up the street, entered the house, and pointed the gun at Monica while he tried to scoop up envelopes containing money. But Monica fought back or tried to run away. Jacoby hit her in the face, knocking her to the ground. As he looked for more envelopes, it appears Monica crawled to the phone and called 911. Jacoby rushed over and shot her in the head. He took several envelopes filled with cash and walked back to the van, where he was seen by Monica's neighbors. He got rid of the gun, but the shell casings left earlier at his makeshift target range matched the single bullet casing next to Monica's body. In October of 2014, Tim Jacoby was convicted of charges including first-degree murder and sentenced to death, largely because of microscopic tool marks on shell casings he apparently didn't even know were there. Jacoby remains on death row. This case was definitely a whodunit. And in my 28 years of law enforcement, we didn't really get a whole lot of good whodunits. It took a lot of time and energy to get to the bottom. This, this was a challenge for our, our little police department. And luckily and, and happily, it, it turned out good. When we started, we had a, you know, a thousand piece puzzle and we didn't have the edges done. So, you know, the forensic evidence gave us the edges in the middle, and we were able to put all that whole picture together so that when the jury looked at those puzzle pieces, they didn't see puzzle pieces. They saw the picture on the box. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. 
Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.